Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and today I'm joined by two amazing experts to discuss the downing of the Russian fighter jet by a Turkish F-16 that happened two days ago on Tuesday, November the 24th. We're going to talk about the effect of the plain downing on Turkish-Russian relations, what it means for NATO's relationship with Russia, and finally, what it means for the Syrian conflict and the peace process that is going on in Vienna. First up is Asla Aydin Tashbas, who is a visiting fellow at ECFR, working on Turkish foreign policy and its ramifications um, and the ramifications of its domestic politics. She's had a long career in journalism as a columnist at Milliet, was also Washington correspondent and anchor bureau chief of Sabah, and also hosted a popular daily show on CNN Turk. She's joining us from Istanbul. Hi, Mark. Hi, Asla. And also down the line from somewhere in Europe is Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy, policy fellow at ECFR and is our lead expert on Russia. So, Asla, why don't you kick off the discussion? Tell us what we know about the, the downing of the plane, what the Turks are saying and how things look from, from Istanbul. Well, this is quite an unexpected crisis. I don't think Turkish government wanted things to escalate to the point it has. And, yet, and as you can see from statements from Davutoglu and President Erdogan yesterday, they're trying to de-escalate. They wanted to give the Russians a warning, but this message may have been received too, a bit too harshly, a bit harsher than they expected. So I think that there is an effort today and yesterday to sort of de-escalate. But the truth remains that Turkey and Russia are digging their heels and fighting a real proxy war in Syria, supporting conflicting sides. I mean, the Russian support uh, for Bashar Assad is actually in direct contra- is a du- is directly against Turkish policy, which still remains trying to topple Bashar Assad. This is almost an obs- obsession for the government here right now. They still believe that. Uh, even after Vienna talks that, uh, you know, Erdogan has said there is no future for Bashar Assad in Syria. And the truth remains, the two sides are fighting, supporting sides that are fighting one another. Now, there's, of course, a domestic component, the group that was hit, that was targeted by Russians uh, right before the downing of the plane uh, is a Turkoman group. Turkoman militia force that the Turks are supporting. And this has been going on for some time. In Turkey, it was already a rising domestic issue that the Russians are attacking Turkomans. And especially in pro-government and Islamist newspapers, you had really emotional stories about Turkomans facing massacres and what are we going to do about it, etc. There were protests, actually, across Istanbul and Ankara. And I believe the Russian ambassador was summoned to the foreign ministry three times before the this incident. So there is a bit of a background to this. But um, there, ha- but it is also true that there have been previous violations of Turkish airspace by Russians, and Turkey decided to sort of talk through this, trying to... Uh, we do know that Erdogan brought it up with Putin, and Turkish officials brought it up with their Russian counterparts. But I think the, with, with the escalation that's going on in Syria... This was almost unavoidable. 
So, Kadri, how does it look from Moscow? You've been following the Russian press and uh, the political reactions. What are they saying? Well, Moscow was, of course, properly angry um, <clears throat> yesterday. And um, it, the incident was unexpected to them. Probably they have underestimated the feelings that Turkey has about Moscow's policies in, in Syria. They have known for ages that there is a disagreement, but they um, probably have thought that it's not as serious as it is, or Turkey is ready to accept Moscow's actions in Syria as a sort of force majeure. Um, and now it appeared that it's not exactly so. At the same time, I would say that also Moscow will try to retaliate, but keep it on bilateral level. So what we are seeing now, it's all the familiar playbook from Ukraine conflict and other post-Soviet conflicts that's being used against Turkey. Uh, <clears throat> cut-off of tourist links, um, food embargoes, uh, suddenly phytosanitary standards of Turkish products are bad, uh, Turkey, Turkish-made children's clothing has uh, announced to be dangerous, etc. So it's it's proper retaliation, but so far with um, trade measures and on, on bilateral level. And I think it's also in Moscow's interest to keep it bilateral and not to allow major spillover on Vienna process or wider relationship between Russia and the West, because Russia's overarching goal right now is still to... Uh, contribute to the Vienna process and to make the West accept Russia's position, namely that the regime in Syria must not be fragmented uh, to dangerous levels. It is true that they are not wedded to Assad. They will be prepared to let Assad go at some point in the future if they can be sure that the regime survives his departure. And that is a big if. But for now, they want uh, the West to accept that the regime is the lesser evil in the fight against ISIS and to launch the Vienna process from all, to advance the Vienna process from, from, from that uh, point of view. I want to, Katri, I want to go into the Vienna process a bit later. But before we do that, can we just um, game out? from the two of you, how you think this is likely to, to escalate? Because it is a, a conflict between two alpha males. When Russia go, Russian jets go into British or Swedish airspace, they don't get shot down. Erdogan is, um, Putin's met his match in Erdogan as a, another kind of tough leader who's trying to show his population who's in charge. So how does, um, Asla, how does um, Ankara respond to the sanctions and the other attacks on um, uh, on Turkish interests? I think the big enchilada would be the energy stuff. I mean, it's one thing to have trade sanctions on clothing and vegetables and this and that, which, as Kadri has ex explained, is happening, will happen, and this is to be expected. But I think the real story is Turkey's Turkey is entirely dependent on Russia for its energy needs. About 60% of its energy imports are from Russia, natural gas imports are from Russia. And of course, Russians have won uh, the major contract to build Turkey's first nuclear power station. In fact, Turks have 
Turks and Russians somehow had had until this point, point managed to compartmentalize the economic aspect of the relationship and their political differences in Syria. Now, this is a point in which the real test would be, you know, whether the Russians would actually uh, bail out on the contract, which is, we're talking about billions of dollars here and the Turkey's first nuclear reactor, or would impose uh, an embargo on gas. But I think the real Turkish expect the Turkish expectation is that the Russians would really retaliate on the Syrian front somehow, somehow and some way. And um, you know, we do know that uh, they are they have been in Iran trying to actually boost up the sort of support for the regime or trying to uh, you know right. In the aftermath of Vienna talks, there's a great emphasis on trying to keep the state intact. So I think that um, one thing would, one sure, uh, one expectation is that they would continue their attacks on the non-ISIS opposition forces and forces that are backed by Turkey, including remnants of the Free Syrian Army. Uh, but But the real fear here is that uh, the Russians would actually start trying to cajole or try to tempt the Kurds, Kurdish militia fighting in Syria, to go westward, expand westward into a territory west of Euphrates that Turkey has repeatedly said was a red flag, a red line. You know, if we if you cross west of Euphrates, we're going to uh, take military action. So uh, that would be actually uh, one worrisome scenario, yet another front in Syria opening up this time in the Kurdish, in terms of Kurdish-Turkish conflict. Uh, Russians have had good relations with PYD, which is the uh, Syrian local militia force, but it is an offshoot of the PKK, uh, with the larger umbrella group that's been fighting uh, a war, uh, a guerrilla war against Turkey for about uh, 30-some years. Uh, PYD leader Salih Muslim has traveled to Russia several times. Uh, he lives in Europe. There was talk of opening offices in Moscow, and I believe uh, it stopped. They stopped. Russians stopped after the G20 summit when Erdogan personally asked Putin not to allow that to happen. One of the immediate, obviously, consequences could be PYD being welcomed in Moscow and per- perhaps op- opening an office. Why is this important for Turks? I think because they see it as once they get a step closer to PKK, their nemesis being legitimized in the international arena. And is there much talk of that going on in, in Moscow, Kadri? Well, um, slightly too early to say, but I agree with Ashley that uh, relationship between um, Turkey and Russia was in many ways unique. I mean, it's been famously said about Russia that it treats its neighbors as vassals or enemies. And by and large, it's true, but Turkey has been a notable exception here. With Turkey, Russia really has managed to have a pragmatic relationship that is compartmentalized. They managed to work together on certain areas and agree to disagree on others. And that has been really quite unique among all of Russia's relationships. And I wonder whether that now comes to an end. As to escalation, well, there are all sorts of uh, crazy proposals floated in Moscow, but I wouldn't take them too seriously. That is just the choir of, of chatting heads that always happens. 
Uh, I think the the actual rulers of Moscow are, are yet not quite sure what to do. They want to teach Turkey a lesson so that Turkey understands that one shouldn't mess with Moscow. At the same time, um, I don't think they want to escalate it dramatically for reasons that I already explained. And are you, Katri, are you surprised that there hasn't been more of an escalation? I mean... People were absolutely terrified of um, uh, responding to Russian provocations when, you know, submarines go around there, you know, go off the coast of Sweden and aeroplanes go into British airspace. And also when little green men were entering Ukraine, people were worried that responding to that might mean provoking some kind of nuclear war. But yet... It does look like um, Erdogan's going to get away with this. I mean, he has called Putin's bluff in a way. Um, yes and no. I would say that uh, the relationship between Russia and the West is psychologically much more tense. And the incidents you described actually happened also at the time when <clears throat> nerves were much more tense. So those probably were more dangerous. Now, um, risk plane crash um, is, is still different. And I think, in a way, it's, it's good that it was done by Turkey rather than someone west of Russia, because uh, Western relationships are much more ideological for, for Moscow, and those would have been seen differently. With Turkey, it's up to a point treated as a misunderstanding. Um, so I, I don't think there will be more escalation. And as I said, I mean, Russia right now has other overarching interests it, that would it, have been the case six months ago. Yeah, doesn't look like it was much of a misunderstanding. I mean, the Turkish president on, uh, asked for the plane to be shot down. Uh, yeah, but it's clear. misunderstanding <laughs> of, uh, of intentions and misunderstanding of... Uh, how important certain issues are to certain countries. And Asla, from your perspective, from a Turkish perspective, we've seen uh, the NATO Secretary General um, talk about how NATO is in solidarity with Turkey and supports the territorial integrity of its NATO ally. Um, but is Turkey going to ask for any actual help on this or is it going to try and compartmentalize the dispute and make sure that it doesn't spread into a big east-west uh, conflagration? I don't think NATO is that happy to see this happening in Syria right now at a time like this. I Yes, NATO did come out in support of Turkey and, you know, <laughs> NATO ally. And, of course, you know, Washington, the statements from Washington are... Uh, to the effect that makes Turks happy. On the other hand, privately Americans and NATO officials, I think, are telling Turks to try to de-escalate and not take this further. And I I think that they must be saying the same thing to Washington. In other words, this is not at all happening at a convenient time for anybody. I, there are some people who are happy to see Turks shoot down a Russian airplane in Washington. These, are general, these generally tend to be people who are critical of the White House uh, response in Syria and White House policies in Syria. And, but that is uh, really not the uh, feeling I got when I spoke to people in Washington. They were like, well, it is true. The plane violated Turkish airspace and understandable what happened, but now everybody might, must de-escalate. And I think that um, 
Turkey will, cannot take this further in NATO. There is not much to do. They can uh, take the case of the Turkomans uh, to, they're, they're going to try to take the case of Turkomans and the Turkoman fighters to the United Nations, but I don't see a, sort of a legal grounds for that, legal justification. After, at the end of the day, these are militia groups no different than other militia groups in, inside Syria. Right. And how do you, if, does it affect the general relationship between Turkey and the West? Because there is a sense in many European capitals that the EU is being taken hostage by Turkey over the refugee crisis. And now uh, there is this dispute with Russia. But what, what do you think all of these things together do to the both the balance of power between Turkey and Europe, but also Turkey's sense of uh, what its relationships with NATO and the EU mean? Well, there's a sense of overconfidence here with the election results whereby Erdogan basically renewed the mandate with almost 50% support. And then following that, the G20 meeting was basically Erdogan's return to the international scene, which he'd been, to be honest with you, he he had not been really the most sought-after leader for a long time, uh, partly due to domestic issues, partly due to his... Syria policy and all, but all of a sudden things seem to have changed and G20 meeting that Turkey hosted was almost the symbolism, the symbolic moment for that. Uh, Turks are willing to do more on Syria in terms of in the fight against ISIS. They've recently opened up their bases in Injirlik, which makes it extremely easier in terms of the coalition efforts against ISIS, but there's more. They are pretty much committed now to clearing ISIS from their board, from their own border. About 100 kilometers of Turkish border is now is controlled by ISIS. This is west of Euphrates, in between the area Russians have hit and the Kurdish-held area, if you can imagine. So that area, Turks are starting to move friendly opposition forces in providing air cover to push ISIS into inwards away from the Turkish border. And this is very important for everybody, especially in the, after Paris attack. Why is it important? This is the, the, gateway, the, the, the gateway that the group, the organization uses, ISIS uses, to access the rest of the world. So I think that on some level, Turkey's um, position on the refugee issue and its ability to go into its and its now decision to go to seal off its border is very valuable for the international community and the Western world. And Erdogan knows this. He does know that a bit of authoritarianism here and there domestically, and a bit of uh, uh, you know unusual remarks here and there, is not uh, going to change anything. He is he is once again indispensable in the fight against ISIS. So it, talking about the fight against ISIS and the wider Syrian conflict um, brings us to the whole question of Vienna and the kind of bigger strategy which Putin seems to be adopting. Uh, Kadri, how do you think that Moscow feels its strategy is going to be affected by the downing of the plane and the deterioration of relations with Turkey? Um, I don't think um, Moscow sees there is a major change. Um, actually, 
I've been looking at Russia's Middle East policy over years, and that has actually been remarkably consistent. Um, they believe that the Syria problem could be contained by supporting the regime. That is their position and remains their position. And I, I think they will not allow the plane crash to really uh, impact it. Nor the Sinai plane crash. Many Western commentators think that after the uh, Russian jet was uh, <clears throat> exploded over Sinai, uh, um, most likely by ISIS bomb, that this will inspire Moscow to turn more against ISIS. That is completely wrong. Uh, terrorism, be it home or abroad, has never been a, poly a catalyst for policy change in Russia. Rather, it has maybe accelerated policies that are already in the pipeline or provided PR cover to existing policies. So that is a totally wrong assumption by, by the Westerners and uh, better, better to abandon that. I, I think Russia will stick to its policy line and uh, try to bring other countries around it. And, of course, the, the question of Assad and the future of, of the Syrian regime is, is a crucial one where I think we still have differences. Um, Russia might be happy to um, make some concessions to the West, but this will be cosmetic ones. They will not accept Western policies of uh, making Assad go and and trying to uh, <clears throat> create a new government combined of various opposition forces. And Asla, how do people in Ankara really feel about Vienna? Do they want it to succeed or is it something which they see as uh, a bad process which would best be uh, destroyed by events on the ground? Well, uh, Turkish policy has been quite obsessive and inflexible in terms of getting rid of Bashar Assad, and this is led by Erdogan and the government. And uh, it's it's it, there is I would it's hotly debated domestically, but nonetheless, that's been the official policy. I think they're now realizing that the very inflexible nature of their policy is costing them a lot in, the, in terms of being on the table in, the, in these settings. So there's a bit of an effort to be more flexible, but I see a huge difference in terms of uh, you know, how Turks interpret Vienna and how Americans and in the, people in the international community interpret Vienna. Turks are basically thinking this would be the beginning of the end of the Assad regime, uh, whereas Everyone agrees that there's a difference between Assad, the regime, and the state, and that the state must remain intact. So this is all fine, but how does it happen? How do you keep the state in, in, intact? Uh, I think that Turks are uh, trying to maneuver, but they're coming from an extreme in, uh, position that's been so domestically so articulated that it's going to be very difficult uh, for them. In, from Vienna, their expectation is a transition regime, transition government and elections in the, at the end. Uh, it's, we are very far from that point. For that to happen, there does have to be a ceasefire and, it's, and all of that. And I don't think that they are, Turks are, or Qataris are necessarily willing to push the opposition groups they're close to for a real ceasefire right now. 
things are escalating. I mean, the, 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 the fundamental message from Vienna is that we must all try to control the groups for a ceasefire. But what's been happening on the ground in reality is quite the opposite. There's been an escalation in conflict, not just on the Turkish-Syrian border, but uh, inwards in places like Hama, Deir and all. So if we put all that together, it sounds like the Turkish and Russian positions are like night and day on the Vienna process. And that's before we even start to factor in the positions of the Saudis, the French, who seem very keen on working with the Russians to defeat ISIS, but are equally intransigent on Assad and the United States as well. So it sounds like there'll be quite a tricky path ahead if the Vienna negotiations continue. But I'm sure we'll be coming back to that in many future discussions. That brings us to our last segment, which is the bookshelf segment, in which we ask our guests to tell us what they're reading at the moment and what books or articles they recommend. So, Asla, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I've been reading... I've been reading a lot about 1915 uh, this year because it's the 100th anniversary of... Armenian uh, genocide and basically it's very interesting at a time when that particular geography is changing again, the borders are changing again. Right now what I'm reading is yet another book on 1915 by Thomas DeWall called The Great Catastrophe Armenians and Turks in the Shadow of Genocide It's it's an interesting historic account because uh, there are times, because it's very much about the territory we're talking about today, eastern parts of Turkey and northern parts of Syria. And sometimes I can't help but think about parallels between uh, Turkey, Turks, Armenians, and Kurds. Uh, and basically, uh, the Syrian war and Turkish feelings of uh, an, an Armenian state, right, back a hundred years ago, is almost an echo, is echoed in Turkish fears about a Kurdish state today. So it's a very interesting read. Uh, I do recommend it. What about you, Katri? I am reading Evgeny Primakov's book about the Middle East. Evgeny Primakov, as many of you surely know and remember, uh, was Russian foreign minister and prime minister. Before that, he headed Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, and he's an Arabist by education. Uh, so I want to see uh, his views about Middle East and Russia's engagement there. I suppose that will help to explain a lot when it comes to Russia's thinking on the Middle East nowadays. So I expect to find some reliable uh, cues from that. Great. That sounds amazing. So I uh, am just going to recommend a couple of pieces from our website. One is a great piece by Asla called Proxy War Worsens Between Russia and Turkey, which was uh, her immediate reaction to the downing of the plane. And there's also uh, quite a controversial piece by François Goudemont on uh, NATO after the uh, on how NATO should react both to the downing of the plane in Turkey, but also the re-escalation of events in the Crimea with the uh, destruction of these electricity pylons. So that brings to an end this really interesting discussion. And there are links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. From Asla, Aydin, Tashbash, Kadri Leek and myself, it's thank you for now. 
The editor of our podcast is Katarina Botel-Atinaro and our researcher is Ulrike Franke. <laughs>